0: The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared.
1: After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online on the app and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com.
0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're filming on location at historic Fort Loudoun in Franklin County. In the spring of 1765, over a group of 100 armed rebels, known as the Black Boys, surrounded and attacked a British garrison inside of Fort Loudoun. By all accounts, it was the first time that American colonists opened fire on British troops. A full ten years before the shot heard around the world at Lexington Green, Many have long considered this event to be the opening stands of the American Revolution. Now, two centuries later, questions remain, and new interpretations have emerged, saying that James Smith and his rebels were not challenging royal authority, but actually enforcing it. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Black Boys' Rebellion of 1765 Our historian Andrew Newman, and senior archeologist at the State Museum of Pennsylvania, retired, Steve Warfell. Thank you both for being here. Thank you Good to be here. First, let us begin. How did you become involved in the Fort Loudoun site? Professionally, I'm, I'm a uh, one of the
2: curators at Gettysburg National Military Park, and um, I've always had an uh, interest in um, history and especially local history and uh, and supporting sites such as Fort Loudoun, um, which has a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful area to come to, both scenic and the, and the histo- history that happened here. Um, and typically, I like to support the staff up here with uh, providing uh, living history and also uh, volunteer um, to help the site out as I can.
1: And I got involved, Brady, um, due to my role at the State Museum of Pennsylvania. Um, in, in 1980, I just started at the museum, uh, Fort Loudon, sits on Commonwealth, Pennsylvania property. And um, it was a matter of, at that time, of researching the background history of the site and then actually investigating it. The Ford site had been discovered by archeologists in 1977, but had not been investigated up to that point.
0: Now, as an archeologist, Steve, I'd like to Mm -hmm. start with you.
1: People have been living on
0: the site for centuries. What made the site so attractive?
1: Well, its its physiographic location is certainly an attraction for Native American peoples. Um, you have the Konakajee Creek, which runs very near the, the actual fort site today, uh, a lot of freshwater springs. Um, th- those would have drawn been attractive to animals. And of course, uh, the Native peoples were following the animals that were moving through the area. Likewise, you would have different stands of um, nut-bearing trees or um berry uh, producing bushes things of that sort that would uh, have made it attractive as well so you, you really are dealing with a landscape that that provided lots of food resources and that's what was drawing the native peoples to this this part of the landscape
0: now you have been involved in a project that's found that people were living here long before the events that we're about to talk about tonight who were these people
1: the native peoples, um, well, gosh, we, we have evidence of native peoples living here as early as the Paleolithic times, which is, uh, oh, anywhere from uh, eight to 9,000 years ago. And then we actually see evidence of, of native peoples living here from through the archaic period, a very long period of time when there are hunters and gatherers. Now, none of these people are living in villages. They're just simply moving on the landscape, following the resources, uh, through the yearly round. But when we get into what's called the woodland period, then we start to see some small villages on this landscape, one of which we had the opportunity to investigate uh, just south of the Fort Site uh, in 1981. But they aren't tribes that we have names for. Uh, these these aren't there was no recorded history. Uh, we just knew of them as people living during the late woodland period, but they had a distinctive type of pottery. Um, They had, um, you know, arrows at that time. Uh, The earlier people only would have had spears. So uh, it's um, characteristic of Pennsylvania prehistory, but we see people living here throughout time. Let's jump ahead a few
0: thousand Mm -hmm. years. Andrew, in the 1750s, the Conica Valley is an interesting place. What's going on here?
2: Well, there's a settlement um, that is wrapped around the Conica that flows from Maryland into Pennsylvania. Um, and it's the conicajig referred to as the conicajig Jig Settlement, um, where you have Germans who live in the southern end and from basically Hagerstown up through Greencastle. And in north of Greencastle, you have what we refer to as Scots-Irish. Um, so this area that the fort um, site resides on what, in present-day Mercersburg was predominantly the north end of
0: the uh, Scots-Irish portion of the Conica Jig Settlement. Scots-Irish are an interesting people, very integral in the history of Pennsylvania. What was their story like when they arrived here, and how did they relate to the heart of the colony back east in Philadelphia?
2: Well, um, this area was considered the back country um, of Pennsylvania, and most, most likely the, uh, of the British western edge of civilization. Um, they were, and, the, and their German counterparts, were basically allowed to settle out here and, and to serve as almost like a buffer between um, the elite out in, out in Philadelphia and the treaty lands just over uh, the mountains that we can see from the fort today, uh, the Tuscaroras.
1: We also have to remember that the uh, Penn government was a Quaker government and that they did invite peoples from all over Europe to come and settle in Pennsylvania so that they could Enjoy religious freedom and the like. Um, so we see populations, particularly Scots, Irish, and the Germans, coming into Pennsylvania. I don't think the Penn government ever realized that so many would come because what we also see in the documents is that eventually they they feared that they would lose their author. That is, the Quakers would lose their authority to these people. So they they were considered to be um, country bumpkins in a sense. But they, as Andrew said, that they they also were viewed as serving a role, uh, settling the frontier and providing a buffer for the uh, elite Quakers that lived in the Philadelphia area.
0: Now this site selected for a fort, but it wasn't the first building here.
1: Can you talk about
0: what was here before that?
1: Well, I I can take that one. Matthew Patton uh, took out a warrant on this property. Actually, when I say this property, we're talking about in excess of 200 acres of land that includes the, the area we know as the fort site today. And he took that out in 1744. And then over the next 11 years, he, he uh, built a house, a barn, a, a log kitchen. And during an Indian raid in 1755 on this property, his house and barn were burned. Now, he and his family had evacuated or fled that property before the, the raid. They, they, there were numerous raids throughout the Connecticut Valley. so. What um, happens is that uh, you you have a situation where he had a, a log house under construction but not completed, and somehow it was spared during the Indian raid. This would have been his second house that he was building, probably to accommodate the expansion of his family. But that was spared, and as a result of that house standing there, John Armstrong, who was given the authority to construct forts wherever there were standing structures, because there was an immediate need to try to protect settlers from these menacing Indian raids. Armstrong elected to take this house that, Ar- that Patton had not completed and put a stockade around it. And that became the site of Fort Loudoun. And if we were to walk outside and see the fort site, we would see that it sits in a, a bit of a, a dish or a, a valley. It's commanded by higher ground. Obviously, it's not a location that would be strategic militarily. but. Many of these locations were not strategic locations. They simply were quick, expedient places where you could put up a stockade and protect settlers from the Indian raids.
0: Andrew, I have a question for you. Is Fort Loudoun the only fort in this area, or are there others? Um, At the time, before Fort
2: Loudoun was constructed by Armstrong and his men, there was a a series of fortified homes, um, house forts, uh, in the In the surrounding area, like Fort McCord, Reverend Steele had a fort, basically anybody who had a you know um, a home that was solid fortified structure um, a lot of supplies before Fort Loudon was constructed were kept at these house forts that were located all over whenever the fort was completed in the winter of seventeen fifty six um, when it was ready to receive stores, all these separate uh, individual um, Fortified homes that had supplies were all relinquished and brought here as a consolidated
0: store point. We have a site, we have a purpose. Let's talk about how John Armstrong saw this fort built. How would you have built a fort in the 18th century?
1: Well, these, these gentlemen who were involved, uh, Armstrong, would, would have been knowledgeable of the general plan of a fortification. As scholars, we refer to that plan as the Vauban plan. A French engineer by the name of Vauban had come up with a very simple design, but very effective design, which was basically a large square that had projections off of each corner. We refer to those projections as bastions. So Armstrong would have been familiar with that general plan of fortification. Um, And that's what they tried to execute out here although it's executed in a, a very unique way, a very different way, um, to the extent that the bastions are more like shooting platforms that are supported by exterior posts. Um, but um, you know that, that would have been the, the plan that you would see executed for all of these frontier forts.
0: This is done under the, the long shadow of the Seven Years' War. Could you catch us up on what that was?
2: When the fort was constructed in 1756, it was...
0: Uh After
2: Braddock's defeat in 55, there was no standing army left to defend uh, this region in Pennsylvania. Uh, There were no militia laws, so there was no standing militias. Uh, This area was subjected to whatever kind of, uh, uh, I want to put it this way, savagery uh, that the French and their native allies put into this region. There were a lot of um, families' homes that were burnt Farms destroyed, uh, people taking back to the Ohio backcountry to be adopted into tribes. Um, this was an area that was uh, very heavily hit. Uh, whenever the the uh, fort uh, was constructed, it did provide some some assistance in that way, but uh, it really the the site really uh, started to get its uh, import gain its importance when it was determined that they were going to reconstruct a road. They were going to build a road from Carlisle, um, to towards, uh, Fort Duquesne to eradicate the French presence. And that road being named after general John Forbes, the Forbes road. Um, and the Forbes road, uh, was one that, uh, wrapped around Mount Parnell. Um, Fort Loudon was a mile or two off of the Forbes road and uh, allowed for it to be used as a, as a substantial supply depot um, during that time.
1: Also, if, if we look at the Seven Years' War, which was this large contest in Europe between England and France, it spills over into North America because you have the French interest in, in New, Can- New France, which we think of as Canada today. And then, of course, you have the British colonies. And it was in 1753 to 54 that the French start building forts down the upper Ohio River Valley, uh, with the largest fort being at Duquesne, which Andrew mentioned. And that was seen as an immediate front to the British sovereignty in North America. So really, this event we refer to as the French and Indian War, and I think modern scholars look at it today as more as a war of empire. It is this contest between France and England that simply has spilled across the ocean. Um, But it it has great consequences, because France basically uh, claimed all of the land of the Mississippi Valley. Um, And and that runs into the Ohio Valley as well. Um, It's not until um, the treaty that results as a result of the end of the French and Indian War that Britain is able to uh, cement its interests in North America.
0: Now, we think about the Seven Years' War, the North American theater, the French and Indian War as Britain versus France, but odds are the settlers here weren't losing sleep over French soldiers marching into their rooms at night. You mentioned the Indian allies of the French. Talk a little bit about Indian warfare, if you could, and what the dangers of living in this region for these settlers was. Well, Indian warfare
2: uh, was definitely brutal for the, peop- the people like the Scott Irish and the Germans that lived in this back country. Um, Matthew Patton, as we mentioned, the, uh, uh, the namesake of the, f- the, f- the landowner here before the fort was constructed, you know, had his house burned in 1755 and he was just in the process of complete- completing his second one when Armstrong came in. Um, so uh, there are a lot of stories, uh, a lot of accounts from that period. Um, definitely covered in uh, resources such as like the Maryland Gazette, the Pennsylvania Gazette. Um, When we think of that period, we think of uh, Mary Jemison, um, who's uh, had an account of her family, um, number of family members being killed, uh, house destroyed, and then herself and other siblings being taken um, by the Native tribe to be um, adopted in the Ohio country. Um, So very, uh, very difficult time. And and again, there was no protection um, offered by the Quaker government uh, in Pennsylvania uh, to help out these people.
1: And I, I think that many times people wonder who those native peoples were that were supported by the French. And many of them were Lenape Indians. We call them Lenape or Delaware Indians. But these are people that originally lived in... Well, the state of Delaware, New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania, who had been pushed out of their homelands by British settlement. So they, they, they move west um, and end up in western Pennsylvania. They see the French as trading partners, but they don't see them as colonizers. And it's those peoples, I, I refer to them as dispossessed people. Uh, they've been dispossessed of their homelands, but it's those people who are very eager to attack the British colonists that have settled on the edge of, of the frontier, which at this time is, is right along the foot of the Appalachian Mountain. And that's why we see these settlements in the Konakajik, um being raided at that time. But I ref- they're, they're French-supported Indian raids. Uh, the native peoples are getting the supplies they need to conduct these raids from the French. Um, and if we look at this line of forts that's constructed in 1756 um, to provide safe havens to these, these settlements, that line of forts goes on a diagonal and it follows the topography of the Appalachian Mountains. So it sits at the foot and that is the, the edge of settlement, British settlement in, at that time period.
0: Now forts are used for defense, we know that, but they're also homes of diplomacy. Andrew, could you talk a little bit about the diplomacy that happened here in 1758?
2: In 1758, there was a a need for Indian allies um, in the British Army, specifically in Pennsylvania, uh, to be used to counter the French's, uh, France's uh, Indian allies um, in Ohio and around uh, Fort Duquesne. Um, So there was an effort to procure the the use of the the Cherokee people. Um, And so in 1758, in the summer of 1758 here at uh, Fort Loudoun, uh, Colonel Henry Bouquet uh, held a council with 300 Cherokee um, trying to gain their support uh, in use of uh, the war effort uh, against the the French. Um, It was not successful, um, so mainly because of the uh, the gifts that were promised versus what, what the what the authorities actually had here, um, so it was kind of a mixed bag. But if you can picture, you know, uh, Colonel Henry Bouquet meeting with some of the Cherokee chiefs, three hundred Cherokee here, very very impressive
0: out of the seven years war, especially in Scots-Irish communities, heroes do loom large. And out of that war comes a name we're gonna talk about a lot, James Smith. Who was he? Uh, James Smith
2: was uh, was born of a I- Scots-Irish family um, around present day Fort Loudoun, uh, in between Fort Loudoun and Mercersburg uh, area. Um, he was uh, at the age 18, um, his uh, he joined his uh, brother-in-law uh, William Smith had a log uh, cutting operation in support of building Bird's Road which was then a road in 1755 that was being used to link up with then Braddock's Road so this James Smith at age 18 is off in uh, off of Bird's Road in between here and present day I believe uh, Ligonier uh, Fort Legonier where he's off with a friend of his. They were, they were cutting apart from the party. And they were approached by French allied uh, natives that were scouting uh, this log cutting operation. He was uh, taken. His friend was, was killed. He was taken then to Fort Duquesne, where uh, he was made to run the gauntlet. Um, which was familiar with that where you would have two lines of of natives that would beat you uh, as you run through these two lines Um, he survived but he was beaten very badly Um, so at fort duquesne he uh, is being nursed by nursed back to health by a french doctor he's somewhat interrogated at that time asking if the men that he's with are well armed he knows that they're not armed at all; um, they're, they're just woodcutting parties. But he tells them that they're they're, they're well armed, and um, meaning that they, you know each each man has two arms. Uh, so he's being nursed back to health. But he's pretty confident at Fort Duquesne that you know when Braddock comes through, you know they're going to defeat this uh, this small uh, French and Native force. Well, he starts to understand he's in a bit of a in a bit of a pickle when. He starts to see these French aligned uh, natives come back with British war trophies, Grenader hats, uh, British coats, weapons, and he starts to get the idea that, hey, you know the, the Braddock army was defeated. Um, he writes explicitly in his journal, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more um, that he keeps during this whole time, is that he's able that uh, he sees the The prisoners that are brought back from Braddock's defeat burnt alive on the banks of the Monongahela, Um, and uh, about how horrific that was. He makes a lot of statements as to, you know, just being just utterly shocked by this. Um, After that time, after that uh, he is uh, adopted into a uh, Kanawaga um, Indian tribe in the Ohio country, basically a a band of uh, hunters. He's adopted uh, that whole process he describes very uh, plainly in, in saying that uh, his, all his hair on his forehead is, and his head is plucked out. He's taken down to the, to the river and uh, the women wash the white off of him. Uh, and then he's adopted into uh, this tribe and treated just like um, a family member. Um, he actually takes the place of a, of a deceased chief um, he's not a chief but he fills that void left when the chief died. Um, so for the next five years of his life he spends living as a, as a family member of this tribe. Um, it's not until years later he makes his way uh, back home. Uh, there's a, a lot of that is captured in a, his Indian name that he was given his name to Skua. Uh, um, there's a journal that's published out there um, most people use that source as a very valuable source of, of learning how um, these woodland peoples operated, especially in isolated areas such in the Ohio country. Um, but so in, so that's in 1755, and in 1760 he makes his way back here, um, back to this area by way of he makes his way uh, from Canada. Somehow he makes his way back here, uh, and he's comes back and legend has it that when he gets back here um just a couple weeks or, or a couple days or weeks before his fiance that he had when he left for the woodcutting party five years ago just marries you know so how heartbroken is that you come back here and your your fiance marries someone else you know just in that short bit of time
0: um so so there we are 1760 he returns britain wins the seven years war a lot of people like to say they win the war, but they lose the peace. Steve, could you talk a little bit about what we call Pontiac's Rebellion, where that came from?
1: Sure, <coughs> excuse me. Um, Chief Pontiac is one of the native allies of the French. And of course, after the Forbes campaign is successful in, in uh, removing the French from the Ohio Valley, uh, there's a treaty that's drawn between basically France and England. But Pontiac and, and a number of the tribes living in the Ohio Valley at that time um, don't like that treaty. So they, they take matters into their own hands. They attack the British fort, at, which became Fort Pitt, but they also attract, attack other British strongholds. Eventually, um, there's confrontra- confrontation between the British Army and Chief Pontiac and his allies, at Bushy Run Battlefield. And at that point, the Brits prevail, and the native uprising is put to rest. But it was was considered to be another threat on the frontier, and it plays into the story here at Fort Loudoun, because after the successful Forbes campaign in 1758, you would think that things are pretty calm, and they are compared to what they had been. So Fort Loudoun's role switches from one of where it had been serving as a supply post, if you would, for the British Army proceeding west to go to Duquesne, um, to one of where it is now monitoring the types of goods that traders are taking west, because trading trade is again allowed to go west of this point.
2: And if- I may
1: add to that, Steve, is that uh,
2: um, to kind of complicate matters, uh, in 1763 there was a proclamation, a proclamation of 1763, and it, it did a number of things. It um, prohibited uh, squatting in the back country, um, treated lands to try to keep the peace with the Indians, but also um, it forbade uh, the conveyance of goods of warlike nature. So any uh, tomahawks, knives,
0: gunpowder, lead, all those things were forbidden. At the end of Pontiac's Rebellion, what would you say is the, the status between settlers on the frontier and the native peoples on the frontier?
2: You know, if I could address that, it's mm. it's still in a very tense period. Uh, at the end of Pontiac's Rebellion, I think we all know of the use of uh, um, Henry Bouquet's use of uh, the soil blankets and the germ warfare, uh, the, uh, at the end of Pontiac's Rebellion, the part of, part of the, uh, the treaty to end that conflict was the uh, release of these uh, Anglo-Americans that have been adopted into these native tribes. Um, and it was a very difficult time, because in some cases, a lot of time had passed that a lot of these um, previous captives are now f- feel like they're family and they're made to be separated from from their native family. Um, and uh, in most cases, that was a very uh, tragic affair. But you know, based on the logic of the period, that's, you know, that's what they they decided. Um.
0: Old habits die hard. I guess. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's go to 1765. You mentioned the proclamation line of 1763 restrictions on trade those laws are broken almost immediately. Who's responsible? Well, it's,
2: it's a, it's a little bit of everybody. Um, there are just like, uh, I think today, you know, there's markets, you know, you, people make money off of certain markets that are available. Uh, because of France being gone, England is now, Britain is now the only, uh, trade partner on the table for, for a lot of these natives that, are, that were previously dependent on French goods. So, of course, there's this clamoring, especially like in the Philadelphia um, and uh, your larger East Coast uh, areas, for sending goods and, and, and trading for certain items uh, from these natives. Um, so, almost immediately, uh, because of the illegal goods that are prohibited, there, there is a uh, uh, breaking of that uh, restriction, um, and that begins in, in March of 1765, and that's what brings uh, Fort Loudon and James Smith into the fold, where you have in, uh, in March, there's this large convoy um, that's sent uh, from Philadelphia by this company uh, named uh, Banton, Wharton, and Morgan. And they have this uh, loaded wagons full of goods. Um, they this this group of wagons. Uh, they go to uh, Greencastle, where Pauling's Tavern. They're transferred to pack horses. Um, eighty-one horse, uh, eighty-one horses are loaded, uh, and pack horses are used because even though Forbes Road was built. It was still a very treacherous journey to get over the uh, Alleghenies. Um, So March 5th all these goods are loaded and heading up uh, towards uh, this area Um, and somewhere along the lines um, stories history can be kind of uh, fleeting uh, but based on accounts um, but uh, there's stories that a barrel of a barrel of something was knocked over marked something else and and scalping knives flew out that uh, that demanded the attention of local authorities, uh, magistrate, uh, in present day Mercersburg, uh, William Smith, Justice Smith or Squire Smith, um, was alerted to this. It set off a lot of interest uh, in the, in the area, um, and um, and because one thing that happened in, in uh, just the, just a couple months before that, in June, of 1764, was a uh, massacre, of. Uh, school children and their schoolmaster in Greencastle, the Enoch Brown school. So there a couple months before, you know, there were a few, uh, I believe Shawnee uh, Indians that three that came in and killed the school children and the schoolmaster at the Enoch Brown uh, at this schoolhouse. Um, so the schoolhouse. So a lot of the people in this in the backcountry here in in this area of Pennsylvania were still very well
0: aware of the threats uh, that were out there. When this is going on, Fort Loudoun is largely at the center, but when the Scots-Irish are angry about this contraband being sold, who is their anger directed at? Is it the soldiers in the fort
1: or is it back east? Well, I I think that probably both, but um, soldiers at the fort are present. I mean, they're close, Uh, so you have that authority there. but I think that there's general discontent with the, um, you know, the British authority at that time.
0: Can we talk a little bit about Fort Loudon
1: itself? Uh, who's in there? Who's commanding?
0: Um, at that time, it was the 42nd um, Regiment of Foot.
2: Uh, Highlanders um, today recalled as the Black Watch, a very celebrated uh, unit still today in the British Army. Um, it was commanded by uh, uh, Lieutenant um, Charles Grant, and uh, this, this unit, this was, a, this was not the entire 42nd Regiment of Foot, but definitely a portion of The 42nd was dispersed at different forts um, in the colony of Pennsylvania after Bushy Run. But this, this unit was a very, uh, as you could say, battle-hardened unit. Um, fought in a lot of the major battles during the French and Indian War. Was, was uh, very much a part of Henry Bouquet's victory at Bushy Run. Um, so you have this, you have a group in there that is very, very skilled in the day of, in that day of, of warfare. Um, so you have, but you also have different points of view. You know, you have, um, you have uh, the locals here that, uh, like I would mentioned, William Smith, um, who look at the common law. British common law is the way to operate. But then you might have Lieutenant Grant and the Highlanders most of which, you know, come from the highlands of Britain, or Scotland, which is part of Britain. Um, And, you know, a lot of those might have, if they were older, you know, they might have had experience during the Jacobite Rebellion, where use of martial law was in place, and putting down riots and riot act.
0: So you have those two different viewpoints kind of coming together here. Earlier in the interview, we talked about James Smith. He comes back into the fold during this time period. What does he do? Uh, James Smith... Uh, like I mentioned, I left
2: off with him at 1760. Well, in 16, 1763, uh, with Pontiac's rebellion, he forms a, there's, because there's no militia laws, he forms a band of volunteers um, which, are, which are given the name the Black Boys. And the reason that they're given the name the Black Boys is because he instructs him in the way of the Indian manner of fighting. Um, he doesn't know any way better to counter the natives than to fight like them. Um, and so uh, in his journal, he's very explicit in the way that, that he had them um, dress and operate. Uh, dress, uh, he wear a breech clout, uh, green shroud, leggings, etc. cetera. Um, and they operated uh, in 1763, defending, defending this area. By the time 65 comes around with this illegal pack train, with this pack train full of illegal goods, um himself, uh, he's alerted by, by his uh, brother-in-law, William Smith, and um, forms his group back together and decide to figure out what this pack train is. Because this, this 81-horse pack train is actually four times larger than the average pack train of the time, and when they get wind that uh, that is carrying illegal goods, they fear that those illegal goods are going to be used against them, like what had happened a couple months before in Greencastle, Enoch Brown, what had happened uh, from 1755
0: on with the Indian raids that that wrecked havoc on this area. We call them the black boys, the way they painted themselves in the Indian way. Uh, Do you think this was a symbolism on James Smith's part of his own Indian background, I guess you could say? Uh,
2: It was. It was... It was in, in that part and also to conceal identity, I believe, um, because uh, whenever they were in operation in 1763, they were operating on a lot of these known Indian paths and trails, because he knew, he knew how to recognize sign um, from uh, sign of, of areas where uh, uh, these natives traveled, were at camp, how to operate uh, like them. And um, I believe it was in part to kind of confuse
0: the enemy as well as to conceal identities. We call the entire event James Smith, the Black Boys' Rebellion. Could you take us through the events, uh, piece by piece, that lead to what would ultimately be open combat between American colonists and, and British soldiers? Sure. Um, as I
2: previously mentioned, in um, March of 1765, there was a large pack train uh, coming through, offloaded onto uh, from wagons onto pack horses. Um, William Smith hears about this that they could be carrying illegal goods. You get to uh, around uh, present-day Mercersburg where supposedly these these uh, pack men, which are the names of the men who are in charge of leading this pack train, are told repeatedly to go to Fort Loudon, be inspected properly by Lieutenant Grant, be inspected, be inspected. Of course, they refuse. Um, This group has backing. They're they're being paid by Banton, Wharton, and Morgan out of Philadelphia, as well as George Krogan is involved in this thing as well, Robert Callender, um, a lot of these big money men, uh, big uh, dealers at the time. So they're coming through this area. Uh, they're repeatedly told to go back to the fort. It all, it all uh, erupts at a place we refer to as Sidling Hill, where the uh, black boys, all painted up, uh, surround and confront these pack men. They're told to, one last time, go back to the fort, be inspected. They refuse, they laugh at them. At, then at that moment, uh, James Smith and his men uh, shoot uh, a number of the horses, and with that, the pack men uh, flee on the horses that they do have. Uh, and the the, the story is, is that they were whipped as they um, ran to Fort Loudon. So can you imagine? So this happens. These, these pack men, of course, now they decide that they're going to run to Fort Loudon and, and tell the garrison there what happened. So they get to the garrison. They tell Lieutenant Grant that there was these... Backwoods people that confronted them and destroyed all the king's destroyed all the king's goods. You know, because at, at this point now they're t- calling them king's goods, not illegal uh, goods. And so, of course, Lieutenant Grant sends his sergeant, Sergeant Leonard McGlashan, and um, about a dozen Highlanders out to inspect the site. They get to the site uh, and they find this burning heap. And then they also find a couple men hanging out around there. Well, they go over to question these men. And whenever they notice that there's a little bit of black behind their ears, they immediately uh, arrest them. And and at the same time, there's nine firearms laying around, which becomes important later in the story, that they also take. And they bring these men back to the fort and these nine arms. Uh, and at which time, the, uh, uh, James Smith, the other black boys and locals come to the fort. This is still, that was in Mar- on March 6th. So a day later, James Smith and his men and locals come to the fort demanding a release of these men. Uh, they release the men, but they keep the firearms. Um, so there's uh, uh, uneasiness right then and there um, for that period. In the beginning of May, there's a, there's another pack train that comes through, and this time it comes by, by way of Carlisle, um, and, uh, at about in a place called, referred to as Harris's place, um, the black boys are again alerted that, hey, there's illegal goods coming through. They find, they, they do the same thing as they did at Silent Hill. They destroy the goods, uh, whip the pack horse drivers pack horsemen pack horse drivers come come to the fort complain about this again this time mcglash sergeant mcglashian and about another dozen highlanders are sent out to pursue and this time it's a little different um this time they run into the uh black boys being camped at a place called widow bars or widow bar widow bar's house um and there's a firefight that ensues. Uh, you have uh, the Highlanders come in there. They see the black boys along the uh, a tree line. They 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 start to engage, meaning they start to fire on the on the black. There's accounts of neither side knows really, you know, who who fires first. You know, of course, the Highlanders say that that Smith and his men fired first. The uh, Smith and his men say the Highlanders fired first, but anyway, the Highlanders take refuge in and around the uh, Widow Bar House. Uh, there's about 30 black boys that are there. Um, as this firefight is going on, going on, um, about another uh, 100, give or take, locals come to Smith and his aides. So all of a sudden, you have. Um, you know, you go from 30 black boys to 80 to 130, you know, and so uh, what happens is that one of the black boys, his name is James Brown, um, is uh, wounded, uh, shot in the leg. Um, uh, Sergeant McGlashan takes this opportunity to, to use him as a bit of like a bargaining chip um, to get out of there, you know they're outnumbered, but you know they're neither. Nobody's being killed or shot, other than this. This James Brown. Um, this firefight uh, concludes with each side going their separate ways. Um, uh, but again, uh, James Brown is wounded in the leg. So what brings us back to Fort Loudoun? So Fort Loudon here we have. Uh, a little bit of a, a, a disjointed uh, idea. Each side, you know, you have the British authority that are here, uh, believing that these ruffians are out uh, causing havoc, destroying the king's goods. Uh, you have, but then you have um, the James Smith, the Black Boys, William Smith, um, f- believing that they're actually doing the, you know, the British. Uh, Uh, what the British authority ought to be doing by inspecting these goods that are going through that go against the 1763 proclamation. Um, There's there's disputes. The uh, black boys under James Smith and William Smith decide that they need to set up their own inspection regime. Um, And so in the surrounding area, any permit that comes in with goods that has the King's seal or, is, or inspection is considered invalid. Uh, the, uh, so the black boys are issuing their own inspections. So they're inspecting these goods and then they're issuing their own pass, as you will, to say that these goods do not contain any do not contain any warlike stores. Um, again, the nine firearms are still being kept. Uh, each side is pushing against the other. Um, you have riot act mentality from from the uh, British authority here, the Highlanders. You have common law. Both sides are meeting. Not, nothing's being worked out. Uh, so then, in, at the end of May, uh, Lieutenant Grant is, is uh, kidnapped, taken to Squire Smith's house, and President Mercersburg made to sign a bond, saying that you know that they they were doing ill will. Um, so all this tensions happening. Uh, Lieutenant Grant's writing back to uh, uh, General um, Thomas Gage, the overall overseer of of British North America um, at the time, complaining about the insults being thrown towards him and his men, um, and it lasts all through September of 1765, um, and then in about uh, between September and October 1765, you have uh, Somewhere along the lines, uh, Thomas Gage decides that, you know, he's gonna send a, a, a force from, by, from Fort Pitt by way of Bedford to uh, relieve and bring back the uh, uh, Lieutenant Grant and his men, and close the fort, okay. Well, what happens is, is, you can imagine, when the local, when James Smith, William Smith and, and the locals hear about a, a force coming by way of Bedford, another another segment of the British Army coming in, of course they, they view that as being you know they're going to be put the rebellion down because you know again, Thomas Penn read the riot Act, Governor Penn read the Riot Act to them um, just a, a month or two prior. so with the fact that uh, that Lieutenant Grant and his men still care, still have these nine firearms uh, and not knowing what this force that was coming in from Bedford was going to do, um, James Smith, his men, which is numbering around 30, and the local people, which is around uh, about 100 or so, 100 to 200 people, uh, local citizens, decide that they're going to surround the fort and demand the release of these nine firearms. Um, so for two nights, and, for two days and two nights, uh, and this is written explicitly, especially up in the, it's available in the Pennsylvania Archives. Uh, Lieutenant Grant uh, writes that uh, James Smith and the local people, populace, uh, put uh, twenty like twenty fires surround the fort and fire on all portions of the fort bastions for uh, two days and two nights, and not one, not but one man was able to climb up on the bastion. At which time he was made to go back down. Um, there's an account from Leonard McGlashan that they were basically made to uh, lay on their bellies um, during, the, during those two days and two nights. Um, and uh, what happened was, is that the fort was uh, then surrendered under terms of giving up uh, those nine firearms um, to Uh, James Smith and his men. There were five rifles and fourth smoothbore arms, and a Magistrate McDowell, um, another local authority, was was, uh, brought in to be the uh, negotiator between those terms. And um, when Lieutenant Grant and uh, the Highlanders were leaving, you know, within a mile of leaving the fort, they ran into that uh, group that was being uh, taken, that was being sent here to escort and relieve them. So what would have happened if, you know, the terms were not met and, you know, that relief column gets here and they see all these people firing on this fort with the British authority being held inside, being fired at.
0: And, you know, it could have, it could have turned out to be something a little bit more uh, than that. Is this the end of the Black Boys Rebellion? What happens to Smith? Is he punished for this? What would have, we agree to be open insurrection? Uh, it depends which Smith you're talking about. Um, James Smith, um,
2: there's an incident in 1769, but because of, because of what happens during this period, uh, William Smith actually uh, is, uh, uh, he has his uh, legal authority taken, stripped from him, um, from the, uh, the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, because of his dealings during this whole affair. Uh, but James Smith pops up again in, in uh, 1769, um, one for a, an act, a factual uh, thing that happened, and the other for something that may have happened. Um, what happens in, in 1769 is that uh, he's on his way to speculate on some land in a Western PA, when he is by Fort Bedford, and he is encountered by a couple of men on horseback, these men are some of Robert Callender's men, and I'd mentioned Robert Callender earlier with one of the uh, backers of that 81 horse pack train that was destroyed, um, of which was, uh, I believe, uh, 3,000 pounds sterling that it was valued as as to what was left. Uh, destroyed. So he runs, James Smith, with some other companions, run into these men on horseback. When asked what his name was, James Smith relinquishes his name, at which time these men take pistols out and hold, hold uh, p- trained pistols on him. Um, James Smith has a rifle, some type of gun, and wheels around with that, so there's a standoff. One of Callender's men attempts to fire his pistol. It misfires and kills uh, one of Smith's uh, traveling companions. Uh, during this whole incident, um, uh, James Smith is brought to stand trial for the murder of, of his companion uh, in Carlisle. Um, he's eventually acquitted, uh, but there are, uh, there are local people that are brought there to demand his release. Um, uh, but the, but then I guess what you're going to ask about the, 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 the so-called other event that happened, um, in 1769, um, there's an account written, uh, 30 years later in his 1799, um, uh, dissertation of his life. He talks about, um, sacking Fort Bedford, and the reason being is that, um, there was a, uh, the black boys, there was this new group of black boys that attacked a pack train carrying, you know, warlike stores. Even though the 1763 proclamation had been lifted, and you could distribute those items to, to natives um, in the Ohio country, uh, this group saw to themselves that they would, uh, uh, you know, destroy those goods. And so this new band was, was captured, held at Fort Bedford. James Smith, it's when he gets, his, gets the gang, old gang back together. He gets the black boys back together. And, they, they, uh, and the story has it that he, uh, uh, at midnight, finds the, uh, the garrison of, of Bedford asleep. He goes in, releases. He's able to release and free. Those black boys, um, and it's and it's account, and in it's an account that is he captures in his in his uh, writings in 1799. But uh, as from the British authority standpoint, we, we've never seen a uh, a document uh, proving that. And so not not to say that it didn't happen, but we we still need to see that
0: evidence. By the standards, the black boys' rebellion has ended. Now, since then, in the 200 years we've we passed, we've heard a lot of different stories about this event. Some have said it was a regional rebellion. Others have gone so far as to claim it to be part of the American Revolution. You do have Americans shooting at British soldiers, but they're doing so to uphold royal authority. So here's the million-dollar question to both of you. Is this part of the American Revolution, or is it something different?
1: Well, it's easy to ride the fence on this one because— um In in effect, it's both. Uh, You you do have this contest of of rebellion against authority, which which one could say is is really the first shot of the American Revolution. But at the same time, from the other perspective, it it could be simply viewed as civil disobedience, and there's no question that that one could see it that way, too. But uh, historians really don't agree, uh, even looking back after so many years, as to whether... This one event can really be given that particular acclaim, but I think that there are so many other aspects of the entire French and Indian War period that sow the seeds for the American uh, Revolution. Um, you know, all the British are moving out to Western Pennsylvania to dislodge the French from Fort Duquesne. It's a horse-drawn army. Um, the animals require forage. They don't have sufficient forage. Every time they would go to a local settlement to try to get enough forage for the animals, they would be charged extraordinarily high prices. And they were saying, well, gosh, we're here to defend your interests, your safety, and yet here you are charging us double what it should be. They, they, they felt that the, the colonists were not um, in effect, not, not uh, appreciating the effort that they were putting into defending the colonists' security. Um, and at the same time, the, the British Army um, oftentimes was fighting arm to arm with provincials who were armed. And they viewed them to be, um, again, country bumpkins, but um, crude, um, poorly trained, etc. It sort of sets up false hope, to be honest with you. By the time of the American Revolution, the Crown thinks that, it won't take much to put down the colonists because they're so poorly trained. Little did they know that it's more than just training that, that's involved there. But I, I think if you look back at this incident, it certainly is a contributing event of the American Revolution, but it's probably pushing it to say it's the first shot of the, of the revolution. Andrew?
0: Yeah, and
2: I, I agree with uh, with all of what Steve's saying. and, and uh, you know, but one, one thing is, and I've thought about this too. You know, reading um, what you know, Thomas Gage, you know, he later end up making some pretty terrible decisions, especially in the Boston area. And I believe that what happened here in the backcountry really contributed to his misunderstanding of what the uh, people here on the frontier uh, and what Americans in general. Um, were about, and I, I think, you know, you know, the Americans, you know, you know, us as being Americans, and, and then uh, British citizens. That's what we wanted to be. We wanted to be British citizens, and and, and we didn't feel as though we were getting that uh, type of respect. And all the, you know, all James Smith, the black boys, William Smith wanted was, was they wanted to be safe. They wanted to be able to live their lives, and. And they didn't want to have the threats of war and violence that they had have lived through during the French and Indian War period. And they, and, uh, they didn't, you know, they, they saw these, they, especially with the pack train and these illegal goods going through, they saw that as the beginning of another war, of possibly being in that same boat again. And they were just acting out of the necessity because they didn't feel like they were being protected. But, uh, but I believe that uh, it undoubtedly is, uh, is part of a, as you can say, if you have a, a, a foundation, you know, that goes into what the American Revolution became. You know, definitely what happened here is definitely a
0: block in that foundation. 1765, no matter what you say, uh, we can agree is a major event in American history. How are we celebrating that at Fort Lauderdale?
2: Um, this year, uh, se- this year uh, 1765 to 2015 is the 250th Uh, anniversary of this event. Um, And to commemorate that, uh, the last weekend in September at the site, uh, there's going to be an anniversary uh, commemoration of that, uh, where we're going to have different displays here, um, archaeological displays, as well as uh, reenactors displaying what the 42nd Highlanders would have been doing here, what their actions are, plus the uh, James Smith and the Black Boys and William Smith. And that is the weekend of September
0: 25th through 27th, 2015. On that note, I'd like to thank my guests, Steve Warfel and Andrew Newman for joining us today. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for a future episode, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everybody here at Battlefield Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.